We are fortunate to have Roger Olson to give the message this morning in Kevin's absence. The Olsons have been here for a couple months now, and we've come to enjoy them and to um, learn about them and to realize their great South Dakota roots. I mean, how can you beat them? We only bring the best to this church. That's all I can say. And, uh, and so if you haven't had a chance to meet them, come up after the service and say a word of greeting and hello to them. But just a word about Roger, it's actually Dr. Roger Olson, uh, was a professor of theology at the George Truett Theological Seminary in ba at Baylor University. Roger has written numerous books and articles for publications such as Christian Century and Christianity Today. His book, he wrote a book also called named 20th Century Theology, God and the World in a Transitional Age. And that book won the award for the best book of theology and biblical studies from Christianity today. He's an expert in historical theology and he once was president of the American Theological Society, co-chair of the Evangelical Theology Group of the American Academy of Religion for two years. And this week, I met a young man here in Denver who I'm going to do some work for, and he knows Roger. And he said, oh man, he was my favorite professor at Baylor University. And so after I met him, I think within like 30 minutes of after doing, meeting this young man, I got this email that Kevin said, I don't think I'm going to be able to come on Sunday, but I think Roger's going to come in and preach. And I thought, what a small world this really is. And so, Roger, I welcome you to come um, and share with us this morning. Thank you. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. I would be impressed with myself if I didn't know more about myself than that. So I don't want you to be overly impressed with me by any means. So I was glad to hear someone enjoyed South Dakota, the Black Hills. The Black Hills is our favorite place, I think, in the world, and we were just there uh, this summer sometime, I think. Yeah, so it was our chance to go back. We uh, grew up in South Dakota, went there for um, uh, various events, including our honeymoon. We did our honeymoon in the Black Hills uh, many, many years ago, of course, 48 years ago now. Um, so I haven't had very much time, really, to work on this. As you can imagine, I just found out yesterday that I'm going to be preaching today. So I, I uh, went on my computer and found a sermon that fits today. What is today? What's special about today? Reformation Day. <laughs> Remember? October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, and launched the Protestant Reformation. So October 31st doesn't usually fall on a Sunday, but when it does, I like to mention that it is Reformation Day that we're here. Uh, well, should be mentioned anyway. It's not just Halloween, although I really am looking forward to going trick-or-treating with our two, great, our two grandchildren who are only two years old, and uh, they may not know what it's all about, but we will sure enjoy 
going up and down the street with them and watching them knock on doors, or we'll probably do the knocking and get their candy uh, in their Halloween, their plastic, uh, you know, jack-o'-lantern. So that's going to be fun this afternoon. Sometime we'll be doing that. So I wanted to preach a sermon uh, that I preached before, and I, I reworked it yesterday uh, about Reformation Day, but really more about the Bible and, and theology and what the Reformation was all about. Why, why was there a need for a Reformation? And it really had to do with what Pastor Kevin has been preaching about, and that is works. Now, Pastor Kevin has been very courageously preaching from the book of James. I don't think I've ever known a pastor who had the courage to preach all the way through the book of James before. And I congratulated him, pat him on the back, and said, good for you, man. That, that's really courageous. Because Martin Luther the guy who really started the Reformation, though I tell my seminary students uh, when I was teaching, there were a few before him. He gets all the credit, but there were, there were some before him. Uh, but anyway, you know, he was really wrestling with this issue of good works. And so when he read James, and, and Pastor Kevin has mentioned this, Martin Luther didn't really like James because he thought that it really took the focus off of grace and put the focus on works. And that's exactly what he was working against was the Catholic idea, Catholic in his day, not so much today, but the Catholic in his day, the church was all about good works. And so I want to preach a sermon that kind of fits in with what Pastor Kevin has been talking about, about the roles of good works and faith and grace and so forth. So the title of my sermon today is Grace Works. Grace Works. Philippians 2, 12, and 13. I don't know if it's up there, but I'll read it to you. It's one of my favorite passages, uh, so I'll read it right now from the uh, New Revised Standard Version. Paul, writing to the Philippians, says, Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, I'm going to talk about those two verses today in some length because they really can be confusing if you just read them that way. And you could easily think, well, he's contradicting himself. Wait, on the one hand, he says, work out your salvation. And then next he says, God is at work in you. So I want to explain that. I want to talk about God's work and our work, and how the two relate to each other. Now, no two verses in the Bible have been discussed and debated more than these two verses together. Throughout church history, these two verses, this passage, verses 12 and 13 of Philippians 2, have provided both comfort and affliction to numerous Bible readers. Among the many biblical scholars and theologians and church leaders who have struggled with these verses and their meaning and tried to figure out what Paul is saying here are the church fathers St. Augustine and then Martin Luther in the Reformation. After that, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, the great revivalist, and even 20th century Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And then there was a Scottish theologian, Donald Bailey, who labeled the truth embedded in these two verses and called them the paradox of grace. What we have here in these two verses is the paradox of grace. In a way, the whole gospel is embedded in these two verses, in a nutshell. But for many Christians, it's been and remains a tough nut to crack. That's because of the paradoxical nature of these two verses together. How can they really fit together? One emphasizing our work and the other emphasizing God's work in us. 
Here's the paradox of this passage. Salvation is both gift and task. I love that in German. When I was studying in Germany, I learned that there is a play on words here. Gabe und Aufgabe. Gabe is gift. Aufgabe is task. So this, these two verses are telling us that salvation is both gift. There's nothing we can do to earn it. It's sheer gratuitous gift. But there is something for us to do. There is a task for us to complete. We're all familiar with the paradox if we studied our Bibles carefully. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of works, lest anyone should boast. It is a gift of God. But on the other hand, James 2.18 says, Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And on and on, the argument has gone throughout church history over grace and works. So probably no New Testament passage is as difficult to grasp as this. It seems contradictory on the surface. On the one hand, salvation is all of God, a sheer gift that cannot be earned. And on the other hand, salvation is something we work at. We have a role to play in it. As I said throughout Christian history and still today, this paradox has given rise to two opposite and equally mistaken interpretations. And the pendulum has swung back and forth between grace as a gift and works as something we do to earn our salvation. During Christianity's early days in Rome, a monk named Pelagius, and he, Preston said that I teach church history, so I have to work in some church history. So, And a monk by the name of Pelagius came down to Rome from Great Britain and began to teach that salvation is all task. And church father Augustine opposed Pelagius. And this was one of the biggest struggles in the ancient church was between Pelagius and his followers and Augustine and his followers. Augustine opposed Pelagius and taught that salvation is all God's doing. We don't contribute anything to it. God does everything. In fact, Augustine believed that God predestines us if we're saved, we are predestined to be saved. We don't contribute anything, not even free will choice. Even that is a gift of God. Man, Augustine argued, or the human person, is like a horse being ridden by either God or the devil. During the Great Awakening in Britain and America, John Wesley and revivalist George Whitfield fell into disagreement and for a while ended their friendship over this issue of God's role and our role in salvation. Wesley, the founder of Methodism, taught that we have a role to play. There is something for us to do. He was a strong believer in free will. He was a strong believer in making a decision for Jesus Christ. And that faith decision is important to our salvation. Whitfield, who was also a great revivalist at the same time, attributed everything to God and said, no, our free will decision doesn't play any role whatsoever in our being saved. God predestines us to salvation or not to salvation. It's all of God and none of us. And on and on the argument has gone throughout church history. And today it's once again dividing equally God-fearing, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christians. Something called the New Calvinism or the Young Restless Reformed Movement led by Christian teachers like John Piper is again denying any human role in salvation. According to them, it's all God's doing and none of our doing at all. These people, like many of us, 
have wrongly divided verses 12 and 13 of Philippians 2 and pitted them against each other, emphasizing one to the neglect of the other. Either verse 12 is underscored with human beings contributing to our salvation with good works, or verse 13 is highlighted with God doing everything himself. And we're just passive. We don't do anything. But what many don't see is that Philippians 2, 12 through 13 isn't about initial salvation, how we come to know Christ in the first place. That is conversion. Paul isn't talking about conversion in these verses. It's about the Christian life after our conversion, after we come to Christ. It's about maintaining a healthy relationship with God as an already converted believer. And that's what Pastor Kevin has been talking about, because that's what the book of James is about. Once we're saved, what role does good works play? As evangelical Christians, and I still gladly call myself an evangelical Christian, we tend to specialize in initial salvation, that is conversion. We know all about that. We are forgiven by God on account of our simple, unadorned faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Good works play no role in our initial conversion. But we aren't always so sure about what comes after that. We get confused about the roles of grace and good works in living a life that's pleasing to God, maintaining a healthy relationship with God, our Savior. To put it plainly, how do we stay in God's good favor after we become saved, after we become children of God? Is maintaining a right relationship with God and growing in God's grace our doing? Is that all up to us? Or is it all God's doing? And we really just relax and let God do it all. What must we do to enjoy the benefits of salvation throughout life? And what does God do? to maintain that relationship with us. That's what Philippians 2, 12, and 13 is saying and talking about, and that's where it comes into play. It answers that crucial question in a paradox, but not a contradiction. A clue to why the message is not a contradiction lies in the Greek words translated work in the English Bibles. This is very tricky, so listen carefully. Work out your own salvation, it says, for God is at work in you. But the secret to understanding these two verses is that in the original language, in the Greek, there are two different words translated work in English. We don't have those two different words. The Greeks did. We just don't have two different English words to translate the two Greek words, so most English translations simply use work both in verse 12 and in 13. But that's confusing because it makes the passage sound like it's contradicting itself. Verse 13 sounds like it's contradicting verse 12, but it's not. You see, the Greek word translated work in verse 12 is one that means continue a task, carry it out to its completion. The Greek word translated work in verse 13 is one that means provides the ability, the means, and the energy. So let's read the passage with the Greek in mind. It means something like this. Carry out, continue your task of salvation with fear and trembling, for God is providing all the ability, all the means, and all the energy. Let me read that again. Carry out, continue your task of salvation with fear and trembling, for God is providing all the ability, the means, and the energy. 
Now I hope the light is dawning on these two verses. The passage's meaning is becoming clearer. When it comes to maintaining a healthy relationship with God, we do something and God does something. I want to suggest that these two verses together express the whole Christian life. Our relationship with God as unconditional good news. We are not puppets being micromanaged by God. We are responsible people in a personal relationship with a personal God. But on the other hand, we are weak, and God gives us the ability to do the good works that he asks us to do. Now, I have four brief points that I want to make after this. First of all, grace is free. And then I'm going to tell you that grace is costly. And then I'm going to tell you that grace is a relationship. And finally, that grace calls forth gratitude. So let me begin with grace is free. Put another way, and going back to the Reformation, there are no grace boosters. And I think Mennonites were the strongest on this in the Reformation. The sacraments do not boost grace. We don't take sacraments in order to get more grace from God, to boost the grace of God in our lives. Even some of the Protestant Reformation leaders like Luther and others weren't quite sure about the sacraments. And, and sometimes they appear in those churches to be grace boosters. What do I mean? Nothing we can do can increase God's grace toward us. Everything we need to be and remain in God's favor is provided by God himself. And it doesn't cost us anything. Grace is free. The problem is that in our human weakness and ignorance, we often want to think there is something we must do to buy or to boost God's grace. Either from fear or from pride, we create grace boosters. Acts that, will, that we think will merit God's favor and shore up our relationship with God. Some churches have formal, official grace boosters. They're called sacraments. Now, as Anabaptists, we don't believe in, in sacraments in that way. We don't think of sacraments like the Lord's Supper or baptism or any others as grace boosters. But sometimes we Baptists and Anabaptists, I was Baptist for a long time, now I'm becoming Anabaptist. That's not a huge jump in my opinion. But we Anabaptists make our own grace boosters, good works that we think are necessary to somehow guarantee God's favor and blessing toward us. Maybe it's tithing or volunteering or attending or witnessing or whatever it might be. Those are our grace boosters if we misunderstand them as things that we must do to earn and keep God's favor. When these good works are thought of as grace boosters, then they become like the pillars famed architect Christopher Wren added to the town hall of Windsor, England in 1689. The city fathers of Windsor wanted a beautiful new town hall and a large meeting room above and an open space below for a farmer's market. They commissioned Wren, the architect of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, to design it. Wren used a new construction method to support the meeting room above the open-air market on the hall's first floor. When the city fathers viewed the building, they were alarmed. The farmer's market below the meeting room where they would meet was without pillars except around the periphery, the edge. 
In the middle, there were no pillars to support the ceiling, the floor of their meeting room above. They asked Wren to add four pillars in the middle of the open-air market space to keep them from falling down into the first floor below when they met in their new meeting room above. Wren flatly refused, pointing out how beautiful the open space was without pillars in the middle. But the city fathers insisted, so finally a bitter Wren added the pillars. Years and years later, the ceiling of the market space needed repairs. The workmen built their scaffolds around the pillars, climbed up to repair the ceiling, and found something shocking. The four added pillars did not reach all the way to the ceiling. Wren's pillars were deceptive. They didn't support anything. Our good works meant to sustain and even increase God's favor are like Wren's deceptive pillars. They may be beautiful and give a false sense of security, but they contribute nothing to grace. It's all grace. The practical point is that our relationship with God is supported from God's side. Everything we need to have a good relationship with God is provided by him. And that's the point of verse 13. For God is giving you all the ability, the energy to persevere, to keep on going, to do the good works. But my second point is grace is costly. Wait, doesn't that contradict the first point that grace is free? Not really. Grace is free to us, but not to God. A popular definition of grace that you may have learned in Sunday school is God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. It's an easy way to remember what grace is. God's riches at Christ's expense. What are God's riches? Well, God's favor, adoption into his family, peace and joy, confidence that our future is secure in him. The Bible calls this life abundant or eternal life. Not just something future, but now. All can be ours now, but only because God himself lowered himself to our level, took on our shame and guilt, and died an innocent death of capital punishment on a cruel and undeserved cross. God's grace is free to us, but it cost him much. This is what German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer meant when he condemned cheap grace in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, and promoted costly grace. Not that grace costs us something, but that it costs God much, and we cheapen it by being ungrateful, by living lives of lazy spirituality, or by sinning so that grace may abound. So this explains why we do good works. They're not grace boosters, but acts of gratitude from our hearts, for the price God paid to save us and draw us into a living relationship with him so that we can share his riches. Third, I want to say that grace is relational. Grace is relational. Yes, grace is free. It costs us nothing, nothing even to maintain a healthy relationship with God and enjoy the benefits and blessings of his favor. However, our Christian life is a relationship. It's not just a condition imposed on us by God. It requires maintenance, like any good relationship. 
a marriage or a friendship or whatever kind of relationship needs maintenance if it's going to thrive. And that means both parties have something to do. God doesn't impose his favor, doesn't impose his blessings on us. He invites us to enjoy them and offers to provide everything we need to have them. Then why do we so often not enjoy the blessings of God's favor in our lives? Why is our relationship with God often so weak and stagnant, stagnant, even almost non-existent? Earlier I said that there are no grace boosters. So it's not due to a lack of grace boosters, good works. God is not waiting to see us perform for him before he blesses us. His grace is always already full and free and offered to us. All we have to do is accept it. But there are no grace boosters, but there are grace blockers. And here comes the conviction part. So get ready for some conviction. There are grace blockers. No grace boosters but grace blockers. This is the answer to what Paul means in verse 12, to work out your own salvation. It doesn't mean build more pillars that don't even reach the ceiling. It doesn't mean do more good works so that grace will be increased. Let me illustrate what Paul does mean with another illustration. When we lived in Texas, I had a common frustrating experience during those extremely hot and dry Texas summers. We had a large yard with many trees and decorative bushes, but the house had only two outdoor faucets, so I would see one of those bushes needing water. It's wilting in the blistering sun and above 100 degree temperatures, so I connect my 100-foot hose to the faucet on the wall of the house and turn on the faucet. Then I drag the hose away from the house, around the corner, and way, way out to the poor, thirsty bush. I stand there and aim the spray nozzle at the bush and pull the trigger and nothing happens. I go back to make sure the faucet is really turned on so that the water is flowing into the hose. It is. And I go back and pick up the nozzle and point it again and pull the trigger and again nothing comes out. What's wrong? Ah, I finally realize it or remember it. Somewhere in the length of that 100 foot hose there's a kink that's stopping the water from flowing. The fault, you see, isn't with the water pressure. The water is pushing to come out and drench the thirsty bush. So I go back the length of the hose and find the one or more kinks and work them out. Then the water that's already there is free to flow. Like the water in the hose, the grace of God is not lacking. It doesn't need to be boosted. It's already turned on by God's love and mercy and our repentance and faith. But often it can't flow in our lives because we put grace blockers in its way or allowed them to slip into our lives. So what are grace blockers? Wrong attitudes, dis wrong dispositions, habits, neglect of spiritual disciplines, the things that Pastor Kevin was talking about last week and the week before. Pride would be one. When Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, he means identify those grace blockers that are stopping the flow of God's grace in your life and with the Holy Spirit's help, remove them. 
He does not mean work harder at pleasing God with good work so that God's grace in your life will be increased. And when Paul says, for God is at work in you, he doesn't mean God does everything and you do nothing. He means God will provide you with all the ability, with all the energy, with all the means to remove the grace blockers from your life so that your relationship with him will be whole again. So what are the grace blockers in your life is what we have to ask ourselves and my life. What grace blockers have we allowed to slip into our lives that are keeping God's free grace from flowing as it can and should? So there are no grace boosters, but there are grace blockers. And finally, grace calls for gratitude. Grace calls for gratitude. The good works that James calls for in his epistle are not a way of earning God's favor, but the main way we who have received God's grace respond to God's favor. We don't do good works in order to be saved or even in order to stay saved. We do good works because we are called by God to do them and out of gratitude for what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. We do them freely out of a heart full of gratitude for what he has done for us. And our good works are enabled by God's grace. All we do is allow God to give us the motivation and the ability and the energy to do the good works. That's why we can't really take any credit for them. Because even though we do good works, hopefully, it's God who's giving us the ability to do them. So we can't boast we can't take credit. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are saved by grace alone through faith, and that is not of works, lest anyone should boast. You see, I, I think one of the major points I want to get across today is that there is really no conflict between Paul's message and James's message. Paul in Ephesians 2 says that salvation is free. There's really nothing we can do to earn it, so don't boast. And James says, but go do good works. And then we get confused and we think, wait a minute, that sounds like a contradiction. No, it isn't. It really isn't a contradiction at all. I believe there is no conflict between Paul's message and James' message. Luther did, and I think he was wrong. Luther even went so far as to tell his Lutheran pastors in the Reformation to not preach out of the book of James. Now, he didn't kick it out of the Bible, as some have said, but he skipped over it when it came time to read through the New Testament or to preach through the New Testament because of its emphasis on works. But I think that's because his misunderstanding of what Paul is, or sorry, James is really talking about in uh, that epistle that Pastor Kevin is preaching through. Now, Paul and James are responding to different problems among those first century Christians. We always have to keep that in mind when we're reading a book of the New Testament. What, what is the issue here? What is Paul talking against in Philippians? Or what is James talking against in his epistle? Paul is responding to those who think they are saved by their good works. So he tends to downplay good works. James is responding to those who think good works aren't important because salvation is by grace through faith alone. The Christians Paul is writing to in most of his epistles think of faith as a work, something that we have to do. We have to be faithful to God's commandments. And they think it's 50% us and 50% God. 
doing the saving. Paul is saying, no, it's all God doing the actual saving. The Christians James is writing to think of faith as mere belief, accepting certain doctrines as true. Those Christians rejected good works because they had right beliefs. So since they had right beliefs, they didn't need good works. For both Paul and James, we are saved, brought into a right relationship with God by God's grace alone. But true saving grace transforms us and results in good works done by us out of gratitude, not to earn or keep God's favor. The question both Paul and James leaves us with is this, are we grateful for the gift of God's grace? If so, then we will do good works to thank God for his free saving grace. So what do both Paul and James mean by faith? You probably learned this in Sunday school too, F-A-I-T-H, forsaking all, I trust him. Forsaking all, I trust him. But that goes way beyond mere belief to commitment and a transformed life of good works. When we forsake all, we forsake selfishness, we forsake living for self, we forsake living a life of pleasure or even of duty, and we open our lives up to God's work in us. So there is really no conflict between Paul's gospel and James's gospel in spite of the long history of confusion about that. To sum up then, we cannot increase God's favor toward us, but we serve God with good works solely out of hearts filled with gratitude for what God has done. And if we don't do good works, works of love such as Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, that calls into question the condition of our heart. Is our heart really grateful to God for what he has done for us in Jesus Christ? So grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, fully ours when we have faith, forsaking all I trust him, results in a new way of life, a way of life that James talks about in his epistle that Pastor Kevin is preaching through. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you today to open our hearts and our minds to whatever grace blockers we may have allowed to come into our lives. We ask you to show those to us and help us with your Holy Spirit's help to remove them. May we really feel gratitude toward you for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ and realize that we will do good works such as you tell us about in the Sermon on the Mount if our hearts are filled with gratitude as they should be. So give us a deep sense of our helplessness apart from your grace, but also a deep sense of what your grace can do in and through us in good works. In Jesus' name, amen.